Welcome back to part two of my talk with Peter Kessler. Let's get right into it. Speaking of Augusta, ever since that course was created, it, it has been changed. It has evolved. You know, they brought Perry Maxwell in the 1930s to redevelop some greens. He moved the 10th green, did some other work. And at, at, since that point, it's hardly ever stayed the same for more than more than five or six years. They're always doing something Thinking about the history of Augusta, what what do you think was the the best iteration of that course? What vintage, if you were going to change it, if at all, wh- what vintage would you restore it to? When do you think that course was hi- the best highlighted course it could be? Pretty much right up until uh, two thousand and one. I think that the the Field of play at Augusta National accommodated the equipment of the time beautifully. I mean, you know, if you go back again to the 96 Masters and we look at, say, the 13th hole, and Nick Faldo at that point had made up the shots that he was behind as Greg had just made a big string of fives starting, well, at the first hole. Actually, the first hole was very interesting because Nick had a putt and he rolled it up to about three feet instead of marking, which he always did. He knocked it in, and Greg had a 10-footer for par, and Greg missed a 10-footer, and that, that started the whole proceeding. And then I think from 7 through 11, or 7 through 12, actually, I think Greg made all fives, if I'm not mistaken. And so when we come to 13, it's now, you know, Nick's, tournament to win or lose and he had a really long second shot into number 13 with a severe downhill side hill eye on the right side of the fairway and he took out his five wood Mm -hmm. and he set the five wood down and he kind of looked at it and he later said to me you know i i set the club down peter and he said and i he said all i could see was out of bounds left and water on the right and he said, so I thought, I'm just going to take a two iron because I can hit it the same distance, but not quite as high as my five would. But I know I can hit it straighter than my five would. And that's the shot I went with. And of course, it was a brilliant shot. It was a really hard shot, severe downhill side hill. And he knocks it into the middle of the green and he two putted for his birdie. And of course, he went on to win and birdied the last hole for good measure. And Mickey Wright, you know, arguably the greatest female player in the history of the game, arguably, because you could pick up a couple of other names, but she's right there. She told me on the telephone that that was one of the greatest shots in the history of golf, and I tweeted that not too long ago, and Nick wrote back and was all happy that Mickey Wright had congratulated him. But, you know, he's, he's had a lot of great shots. I mean, the three-iron at, at Muirfield into the final hole in 92, and the five-iron into Muirfield's 18th green in 87. You know, so look at the clubs I just referenced. The two-iron, you know, the the... You know, we're talking about, you know, longer clubs going into those holes, not only at Muirfield, but at Augusta National, Jack hitting the four iron into 15 in 1986. So I think it worked great through um, the point where the ball changed in 2000. And yes, Tiger came along in 97, and he did in 97 what Jack did in 1965, where Jack basically didn't have an eight iron, anything longer than an eight iron, to pretty much any par four for the week, and he and uh, and you know we had not seen that before. You know I, I was pretty young then, but it had was not the case where guys were hitting a lot of short irons. And Bobby Jones said Jack plays a game with which I'm not familiar, which of course was completely not true because. Jones was just using his Southern company manners to say something nice, but he completely got what Jack was doing. He was totally familiar with it because he did it himself. He was the longest player when he chose to be in his prime, and he was the best iron player in his prime, and he was the best thinker in his prime, and he was the best putter. He knew exactly what Nicholas was doing. I mean, there wasn't you know, any anything about it that was foreign to him, but it was just a nice thing to say. And, uh, you know, Jack has basically said the same thing about Tiger's performances, but Jack was doing what Jones did. He was just saying the nice thing. Jack knew exactly what Tiger was doing because Jack had done exactly those things himself. So I think once the ball became longer, starting in 2001, the complexion of of the shots started to change. And so right up until then, I think they had it absolutely right. And the changes that they've made since were a series of, in some ways, unfortunate ones because of the addition of the trees. You know, and Jack Nicholas told me that 
he told Billy Payne, you know, who was until this year uh, and for a number of years the the head of Augusta National, he told Billy Payne that you know Bobby Jones's and Alistair McKenzie's idea was that this should sort of resemble the old course in many ways that you should be able to run the ball up like on number five that you used to run it up to and recreational players still can and number fourteen where you can run the ball up and Billy Payne didn't know that the old course was the template for Augusta National Golf Club, and Hootie Johnson, if he knew it, didn't listen to it, and he didn't understand, and he and Tom Fazio got together and made a series of really ill-advised changes. I mean, the trees on 11 and the trees on 15, the lengthening of 7 has changed the nature of the golf course. The 7th green at Augusta National is meant to receive not just a scoring club, but a pitching club. It was meant for wedges. It was meant for 9 irons. It wasn't meant for long irons. It wasn't meant for 4 and 5 irons. It's not a green that you want to hit a long iron into. Yes, it will make par, you know, a, a very difficult thing to make, but that's not the idea. You know, and you take a look at, uh, uh, yeah, number seven is a good example of where you have to hit a, a too long of a shot in there. Number 11 now, you don't have room to drive it down the right side, but if you hit it too far left, you can't go at the green because the angle is bad and the lie situation is difficult and there's a little bit of rough where you might not be able to uh, control the spin. So in the trees, on the, the additional trees on 15, getting rid of the speed slot on 15, um, the T the, the on 18 is completely insane. When you go there and you go stand on that back tee, you can't even understand how somebody can hit the ball in such a tight, non-dispersion pattern way to just get it into play. And I said to Greg Norman, what did you think of the new tee on 18? And he said, the new tee on 18, he said, it's like trying to hit it up a gnat's ass. He said, it's completely impossible. He said, you can't curve the golf ball. He said, there's nowhere to curve the golf ball. So look at what they've had to do to protect the scoring at Augusta National by making changes that Jones would absolutely have not agreed with. Alistair McKenzie would absolutely not have agreed with. Um, you don't make seven into a hole where you have to hit a long iron and you pinch the fairway in. And uh, yeah, so I, I think the changes have been unfortunate in response to the increased distance that the ball goes. And I think that all started in the 2001 Masters. Um, now, of course, Tiger won that year to complete the Tiger Slam, and he had also just won the Players' Championship, which people may forget. So he held the five most important titles, you know, all at one time. So when they say now, when Jim Nance says this Masters this year is the most anticipated in the history of the game, I would say not exactly. I'd say 2001 was more anticipated. And I would argue that they had just as many good players in their prime. Tiger, Phil, Ernie, David Duvall was still playing then. VJ Singh was playing then. I put those guys up against this crop of guys big time any day of the week. And, uh, you know, so at, at that point, um, you know, Tiger was clearly longer than everybody else, but Jack was longer before him and Jones and Hogan. And, you know, that's part of the reason they constructed the records that they did, but they did everything well. But, you know, the changes since then have been unfortunate, and now they're going to move that tee back on 13. Will guys still be able to get to the green? I'm not so sure. It was meant to be a par four and a half, which was a concept of Jones and Alistair McKenzie that, they, that you know, if you, if you had the guts and you had the ability to knock the ball on the green and two, you could get your three or you could get your four. But boy, you miss hit that second shot and you bring six into the equation very quickly, a la Curtis Strange in 1985, you know, after starting with 80 and then having the lead of the final nine, the final day, and hitting the ball into the water on 13 and 15 and making sixes. And Billy Joe Patton making sixes there in 1954 as an amateur to get himself out of a playoff with Sneed and Hogan, which which Sneed won, which Sam told me the reason he won the playoff was because on 16, he said it was a really long uphill putt for both he and Hogan. And, and he said, and when I hit it, I knew I hit the ball way too firm. And he said, but it stopped right at the edge of the hole and that he had a suspicion that Hogan was going to misjudge the speed. And sure enough, he did. And he left the putt short and he missed the putt and he three putted and Sneed went on to win by a shot for the last time. Either of them would win a major championship. But again, you know, 13 and 15 figured in the mix 
because it was truly a par four and a half, where now the guys are easily getting, as you referenced earlier, Sergio hitting eight iron in the 15. That was not the idea. Yeah. Well, on 15, I think the real tragedy is the the trees that they put in, which basically cuts the fairway almost in half. It used to be, I don't know how wide it was, 60, 70 yards wide, maybe. But you want the players from wherever they are to, to be thinking about going for the greens. But now if anybody pulls a shot, you know, left of center almost, it's just, it's an automatic layup. And, you know, that just takes the whole, the whole point of having a short par four like that out of play. Well, that that's exactly right. It was, it was, it was meant to be played as a second shot course. I mean, the, the idea was the second shot on all the holes, including the par fives, would be the pivotal shot. The reason for that being, of course, that they would give you plenty of room off the tee. Now, you, if you had the wrong angle into the green, the, the shot was made more difficult. But if you had the correct angle, you could have a go. And, and not having a go from a what is now a narrower fairway on 11 and 15, as you just pointed out, takes away from the original intent of the golf course, which was as few trees as possible and par fours and a half, and now they're par fours. It would also be interesting to see how the modern game would fare on like Augusta from like 1995, you know, pre-first cut, pre-tree planting, you know, just have all that width all that space to drive so guys you could hit it anywhere and to see how they handle that now on the other hand last week i talked to brad klein and he he said that angles are not even important anymore to the pro game because they can just hit it so high and stop it where they want to especially if they can hit a drive 320 yards and have scoring clubs in so angles don't even matter so maybe it would not be that interesting but so you're but you're on records thinking the like the the mid late 90s Augusta National is what you would do. No thought of turning it back to like the original McKinsey version when it was ragged and, and, and raw and those kind of well, very okay, strange green of, shapes. Okay, well, in terms of the look, that to me, that's a slightly different question in terms of the playability, but the I like the scruffier look. I like, uh, I, I like what they did early on. I mean, I... You know, I certainly think they did the right move, as you mentioned, Perry Maxwell moving the 10th green to the left and up the hill. Um, the addition of the, the the change of the 16th hole was a good change. Um, but And the green speed uh, was not as big an issue in those days. They didn't make them quite as fast, uh, certainly not nearly as fast as they are today. So putting has become much more important than was originally intended, and uh, and so you know, so from that point of view, yeah, the, the the playability has changed. But I think they generally got it right. I, you know, I, the, you know, Sarazen told me that he loved the golf course when he played there in '35 for the first time. He missed the one in '34 because he had committed to an exhibition in South America, and of course, he did win there in '35 and made the double eagle on '15 that you know, 25 people saw, and Jones was standing behind the green, Walter Hagen was playing with him, and Byron Nelson was playing 17, and he stopped to watch Gene hit his second shot. So Nelson saw it go in the hole, Sarazen and Hagen knew it had gone in the hole, and Jones was standing behind the green and saw it go in the hole. And, of course, Gene told me 10,000 people had come up to him to say that they were there that day. Um, but, you know, they, I mean, that was a great hole then. I mean, you know, he he, he had a, a turf rider four-wood in there, and you know, guys aren't hitting four-woods in, in the 15 anymore. And so the shot values are definitely better in the old days. And I agree with you. I hadn't really thought about the, the point that you just raised, a really nice one about the look of the place. I, I liked it when it was a little bit scruffier. Yeah, I, I, I go along with that. I, I, you know, I love how beautiful it is. I, it's the one course that actually really looks like that, as manicured as it is. Nobody else can spend that kind of money. And, um, but yeah, I liked it a little bit scruffier, and I certainly liked it when the guys could have a go with a longer club into the par fives. And I mean, look what they did to number four and six. I mean, those holes used to be like 160 and 180 yards, and now they're both like 240. It's completely insane what they've had to do 
in regard to doing something to to uh, avoid a scoring onslaught brought about by the distance that the ball now travels. So yeah, the scruffier look and the longer second shots. I would definitely vote for that combination. Good good call on that one, Derek. So. Just probably there aren't too many people that that know as much about golf history as as you do. You're a, a walking encyclopedia with instant recall. So, out of all the golf courses that have hosted major championships, are there a couple that you think have historically been the best at producing great champions and producing great events and doing all the things that a golf course needs to do to identify superior play? And they could well, they could be in in. British Isles, they could be U.S., Australia. Actually, well, there aren't any there aren't any majors in Australia. But but go uh, on. Just, don't well, don't Gary, let my Gary, Gary Player would Gary Player would have agreed with you. He would have said the Australian Open is a major because he won seven of them. Does he? he I think uh, I'm sure he counts those. <laughs> Maybe nobody else oh, yeah, does, he, but he does. Yeah, he wants to take the PGA out, even though he won it twice. He wants to take the PGA out, put the Australian Open in to give it more of an international flavor, but. Yeah, I think there's some courses that have, you know, absolutely stood the test of time. I mean, Carnoustie's a great example. You know, when uh, Gary beat Jack there in 68, Jack on number six, where they renamed the whole Hogan's Alley because Hogan, you know, played his drive in the 25-yard width between the bunker on the right and the OB fence on the left. A lot of guys were hitting shorter clubs in there, but Hogan was trying to go for that green and two. And and Nicholas snap hooked his drive on number six in the final round playing with Gary, and then he kicked his golf bag. And Gary said that was the first time he'd ever saw Jack get upset. And they're they're coming down the stretch, and those last five holes are absolutely murder. And Gary hits a three wood to about three inches on the spectacles hole number fourteen, and then Jack came back with a great play on number fifteen and. Gary says to Jack, what are you doing to me? What are you, why are you doing this to me? And Gary, Jack said, what do you mean? What are you doing to me? And then on the 16th hole, which is one of the hardest holes in the history of the world, it's a par three. It plays eight zillion yards, always has. Player hit driver, and Jack hit three wood. And they both made threes on the hole. And that green isn't even hittable with a wedge. It's like completely insane. It's just so tilted to the left. And it's rather small. And there's a hill on the right. And there's an embankment on the left. And so Carnoustie is one that's that's really stood up. Now, unfortunately, in 99, they manipulated the golf course. The superintendent, John Phipps, um, was left alone by the RNA to set up the course for the championship, and he completely blew the whole thing. He made the rough too long, and he pinched in the fairways, and that's why you got three guys in a playoff that you would not have picked any of them to finish in the top ten when the week began. But take away that year, take away the manipulation, but use it as an example to show what you know manipulation can do to the negative on a golf course where you overdo the whole thing and you make it tougher than it has to be. But Carnoustie, a super-duper place. I think Pebble, interestingly enough, and to me, very surprisingly, has proven to be uh, an absolutely wonderful venue for U.S. Open, and I never can figure out why. I mean, Tom, you know, of course, Jack won there in 72 with the famous one iron to 17, and he beat Arnold, who was still relevant but wasn't really winning anymore. And then, of course, in 82, Watson finished birdie-birdie to beat Jack. And so, you know, there's two great players. And, of course, you know, I was there with Tiger in 2000, and that was an incredible week. I actually walked with him in his final nine tune-up on the Wednesday evening before the tournament started that he would win by 15 shots. And it was me and Stevie Williams and Butch and the late, great Sandy Tatum and it was just us walking the golf course and most of the people had gone for the day would teed teed off like at six or something and played till about 740 or something like that and Tiger hold an eight iron on 15 for two and hold a pitching wedge on 18 for three and made two other birdies to shoot 30 and never looked like he was going to miss a shot and they assured me afterwards it was the best tune-up he'd ever had and I said yeah it's like the best tune-up anybody's ever had and <laughs> um so you know it it's produced some you know some really terrific champions I mean 
Uh, I know Graham McDowell won there, and he wasn't one of the great players in the world. But for some reason, Pebble has has stood up fairly well, um, and I can never figure out why, because to me it's got 12 pedestrian holes and six really terrific holes. But, you know, one through five are a non-event, and and 12 through six or a non-event, and the green on 17 is completely goofy, even though they, they, they tried to fix it up, and the 14th green is goofy, and they've done a little bit of work there, but it's still an unfair leave, even for a pitching club on your third shot. There's just nowhere to sort of hit the ball. you gotta, you got to give the players room to land the golf shot and allow it to either roll out or to spin, and 14 doesn't give you that option on the left upper side of the green over that bunker. And uh, but yet that's turned out to be a particularly great venue. And then, you know, and you've got to go back to, you know, Augusta National because it generally produces a great player. I mean, if you look from, say, 58 through 66, Arnold, Gary and Jack won eight of those nine and Art Wall won the other one in 1959, which Arnold should have won. And uh, so obviously it produced, you know, one of the best players of all time eight out of nine years running and uh so that 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 certainly at that point may have been its greatest iteration as as your terrific question about you know when did it play the best perhaps it was right then you know when arnold gary and jack kept you know alternating the title between them every single year and uh you know i think winged foot has stood up well. I mean, Casper won there in 59. Bobby Jones won there in 29. You know, and I, I've seen some diagrams of the playoff that Jones had in 29 against Al Espinosa that he won by 23 shots when he yeah. shot 72-69, and Al didn't. And the, <laughs> <Al> drives, didn't. <laughs> and the drives were averaging 280. He averaged 280 off the tee at Wingfoot in 1929. So, and, you know, Billy Casper, you know, one of the most underrated players of all time, won 51 times on tour, hitting a fade, hit 10 times on the senior tour, hitting a draw, you know, and then he won, you know, the U.S. Open at Wingfoot, and he won the U.S. Open at Olympic, and he won the Masters in 1970 in a playoff against Gene Littler. And uh, so, you know, the, I feel like they haven't played it there enough, and the fuzzy zeller Greg Norman uh, dust-up was pretty cool, even though Greg succumbed again in the playoff. But Fuzzy, I think, started birdie-birdie. And you did not – nobody makes three on number one at Wingfoot. And nobody makes three on number two at Wingfoot. And he rolled in like a 60-footer. It was completely insane. And Greg made double, you know, and then they shot 67-75 for Fuzzy to win, who later told me that there was no way anybody was going to beat him that week, that he was went into that tournament playing the best golf of his life. And he knew that somehow he would – end up on top and of course he crushed Greg in that playoff so Wingfoot's done a great job and you know the old course has done a pretty good job of producing you know some pretty ridiculous winners I mean you know Jones won there won the Open in 27 won the Amateur in 30 and of course Sam Snead won the Open there in 46 and uh, Arnold, you know, missed by a shot in 60, and Lima wins in 64, and then Jack beats Doug Sanders in 1970 in a playoff, and Jack again in 78 wins at the old course, winning twice there as Jones had done. And then the Nick Faldo 1990 win there over Greg Norman, when again they played each other in the third round, and Nick absolutely crushed Greg, and Greg said afterwards, it's better to be lucky than good. And I said, but he wasn't lucky as opposed to you're good I said he just kind of played better golf than you did and he eventually acknowledged that Greg and I have always gotten along pretty well and I remember we played golf at the medalist some years ago because he was supposed to give a speech and he didn't want to give the speech so he called me up and he said come interview me so I don't have to write a speech and I said sure I'll drive down and he said come meet me at the medalist in the morning and we'll play 18 holes, and then we'll go have lunch, and then we'll go do the speech, and then we'll go have dinner, and we'll go drinking. And I said, that sounds like a great day. So we're two of us are walking the medalist, and I said to him, so, you know, you never won a major in the United States. I said, how often, seriously, do you ever wake up in the middle of the night and think about that? And he said, I've never woken up in the middle of the night ever and said, oh, my God, I didn't win the U.S. PGA, the U.S. Open, and the U.S. Masters, and I gave him a look that said, you are so full of it, 
and he threw up his hands and he started laughing. He said, okay, okay, about a couple of times that I, you know, have a little problem with it. I said, of course you do. How could you not? I said, it's been some of the defining moments of your life. And I said, for a guy who's won 100 golf tournaments, you know, in, in a crazy way, you're known for having trouble on some of the biggest stages and being successful on some of the biggest stages. And you're, we're number one player almost 335 weeks over the course of your career. But yeah, so, you know, he that upset him. So, so there's a few courses right there that, that have definitely stood the test of time and they didn't, you know, and now they've manipulated the the old course. The 17th tee has been moved way back onto another golf course and the second tee has been moved way back, but there's really no more room to do anything to that golf course. And so the RNA just takes the view, well, whatever they shoot, they're going to shoot. And you know, secretly that the RNA is much more interested in rolling back the ball than the USGA because they have fewer golf courses in the rotation and none of them can really be played with in terms of their length. So moving the ball back a little bit would certainly help the the, the Open Championship. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you went to Greg Norman because I had just made a note that I wanted to ask you about him. You know, we, we were talking earlier about hitting longer clubs into greens at Augusta. And in 86, he, Norman uh, was tied with Jack Nicholas coming down the 18th fairway. And I believe he had a four iron in his hand. That's and right. he flares it way off to the right, ends up making double, you know, and Jack wins outright. But, you know, these days, you know, a guy with his length, the best driver would have a nine iron. There's no way he's going to flare that into double bogey territory. So, and then we all know what happened in 96, the collapse with, with uh, Nick Faldo. Even in 99, the Masters I mentioned earlier when Olaf Thobel won it, Greg Norman had... Uh, was right there. They were in the final pairing together. Um, yes. at, at different points, Greg Norman had the lead. He, I think he he eagles thirteen, and then produ- then goes on to bogey fourteen, bogeys fifteen, I think. But anyway, you know he just he just faded. He had the tournament right there, and it just you know went through his fingers. Why? So my question is, do you you've spent time with him? And it's funny for a guy who won as much as he did around the world, his reputation will always be his failure to close on the big stage. Do you have a theory? What what happened inside of his mind or with his body that he had such fantastic flameouts? Well, you know, some of the best players in the world of his time would tell you that he had a heart the size of a grape. And that big moments really scared him. You know, Nick Faldo had his number in major championships pretty much always. But in regular tour events, Greg beat Nick 80% of the time. So if the stage was its biggest, then Nick would win. You know, like the, like 90 at, at St. Andrews and like 96 um, at the Masters. So I think in 96, he uh, he got he was internally freaked out i remember seeing him when they first started to show the round and i thought that the skin on his face looked stretched to me and he looked very uptight to me and of course that whole round he would set up over the ball and then he kept moving his stance and aiming further and further right and his caddy kept saying you know watch your target watch your target it's fascinating to watch that it takes forever to hit those shots and yes, and you know, so on 12, he hit the terrible iron, and then on, to the right, and then on 16, he snaps it into the water on the left. I mean, you never see anybody hit into the water on 16. And so, you know, I think nerves got the best of him. The, the import of the moment got the best of him in 96. And then in 99, well, then go back to 86. The thing about that four iron that he ended up making the bogey on 18 to fall out of the tie with Jack and lose by a shot. He had an uphill light, and Greg had a history of not getting to his left side on some longish shots when it really mattered. And you could go back to 84 at Wingfoot, which we talked about with Fuzzy, and in the 
final round on the 72nd hole, he fanned his second shot way to the right into the stands, had to take a drop, pitched it basically over the green, and then made the 40-footer for par. But Greg's miss used to be to the right because there were a lot of times where he wouldn't get over to his left side very well. He would hang back, and if he had an uphill shot, then the odds were pretty good if the pressure was strong enough that he would block it again because he didn't move his weight from his downhill side to the uphill side as you need to do when you have an uphill shot to hit a straight. If you hang back, you're going to hit it right if you don't flip your hands, and if you flip your hands, you're going to go ahead and hit a hook, but he used to miss it to the right. Now, the old Lathamble thing was really weird because I talked to him about that, and the thing that happened on 13 actually was Greg makes the putt for Eagle three. Then Ola Thobble made the putt for Eagle three. They both made three. And Greg said to me later, he said, when Ola Thobble made the Eagle putt, I knew I was in trouble. And I said, but you weren't. I said, the match was, was, was still in hand and anything could have happened over the last five holes. But you weakened and didn't play them as well as you might have. And so I I thought he had a kind of fatalistic attitude that had certainly uh, more than developed by the time 99 rolled around. And I think that's why we didn't really see him after that. I think that the the one tournament that we, we just don't hear guys talk about or write about was the effect of the Olafable thing, in my view, putting the final nail in Meg's champion and Greg's championship major championship career, that 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 he would have a thought that somebody who just topped him making the same hole would then have the upper hand, you know, might be something thing that happens to somebody in the B flight of the club championship where right. you know all of a sudden you know you you're pretty sure you're going to not play so well and you get nervous over a five footer and we've all all recreational players have been in some kind of matches or a club championship or playing with friends you know where you feel the pressure and sometimes you succumb to it and that's one of the the, the charms of the game quite frankly is trying to figure out a way to handle it and I think the experience in 90 with, uh, well, certainly the three experiences in 86 where he held the 54-hole lead in all four majors and only won the Open Championship. And then, of course, Tway finishes his year off by holding a bunker shot at the PGA Championship in Inverness to beat Greg by a shot. But Greg shot 40 on the back nine. It wasn't so much the Tway shot. It was the 40. And then in the next major which was the Masters of, of 87, Mize chips in, so he, so he loses to two hole-outs, one on the 72nd hole and one on the 74th hole to lose championships. So losing three 54-hole leads and then losing back-to-back majors by hole-outs, then the experience in 1990 with Nick, then, of course, a few years later, he did win at St. George's with that great final round, 64, and beat Nick, who had started the day ahead of him, but Greg had started birdie, birdie, and just went crazy that day. But also, I think the experience at uh, uh, when he lost to uh, Mark Kalkovecchia in the Open Championship really was difficult because he birdied the first two holes of the playoff. Then he hit the wrong club from the edge of the green. He should have putted, and he hit a chip that didn't spin the way he intended to spin it. And most good chippers don't spin their chips. They allow them to roll out like a putt. So I think that hurt him. The 96 hurt him. And then I think the final – and then – I think the final dagger then was the Olathebel loss in '99, and then we pretty much didn't see Greg again. I, I always wonder if, when he's playing with Olathebel in '99, and I agree, I think this is a really overlooked Masters in uh, a moment. But I wonder if he, in his head somewhere, he's thinking, "I know Olathebel's not going to make a mistake." The guy was such a tactician around the golf course and so solid mentally. I was in a room once with Butch Harmon, and this was when he was still with Tiger. And he said, there's only one guy in the world that I know of who could match Tiger mentally, who's got the, the, the heart, who's got the drive, who thinks clearly under pressure. He's got nowhere near his game, but he has it upstairs, and that was Jose. So, and you watch, you watch the, how that round plays out. Norman hits it on 15, uh, hits it in the right rough. 
could go for the green, but chooses not to, lays up. And that's when Olathobel's like making his deliberations, and he lays up too. So he starts playing this match play game, and he just basically lets Norman make the mistakes. It's it's a it's really a beautiful round of golf that's overlooked by Olathobel. Oh well, no question. I you know, Olathobel, it was only missing one thing that would have kept him from being you know somebody who won five major championships instead of two. And that was he wasn't a great driver of the golf ball. You know, he, he wasn't particularly long on a relative basis. He he was actually a lot like Jordan Spieth. Um, he, he, was, he was shorter. He was more crooked. But from that point in, he was ridiculous. And he was a super-duper iron player out of the rough, like Jordan Spieth is today. A wonderful wedge game around the greens, like Jordan Spieth. He was a, a really good putter, but didn't really get as much credit as Jordan Spieth seems to get, even though Jordan's a little bit streaky now as opposed to consistently terrific. But I think he'll, you know, he knows that, so he's working on that, getting ready for next week. That's why, going back to the beginning of our conversations, to, you know, you think about what the top five or seven guys needed to be thinking about going into Masters Week. And and if I can identify the problems and you can identify the problems, well, you know they're working on them. And Jordan has has started his week off here before the Masters, starting to putt well again. So, you know, they're all addressing the stuff that they need to address. But Ola Thabal around the greens was ridiculous. I mean, I went to uh, Spain in 03 or 04, to do an interview with Sebi uh, for Golf Magazine, and I spent a few days there, and Olafabel came over, and awesome. the two of them and I were stood around one of the chipping greens, and they took turns trying to hit better shots than the other one. It was ridiculous. The stuff that they could do was so ridiculous. I mean, I, you just, you know. You could sell tickets to that. Yeah, just the I two of those guys just hit chip was, shots. It was just the just the three of us. It was fantastic, and I mean their landing spots. Because I said to I said to Sevy, I said when you look at the spot on the green where you're going to land your golf ball to let it roll out the way that you see the shot in your head, I said how big is that spot? And he said, he said, he said, do you know what a frisbee is? And I said, yeah, of course I know what a Frisbee is. And he said, about two-thirds the size of a Frisbee. He said, that's about the size of the circle that I look for. And he said, and then Olathabel said, um, basically to Sebi, well, you know, when we play Augusta National, he said, you know, when you have an iron shot in, he said, you know, that's the size of the spot you're looking at, you know, maybe the size that he said hula hoop. And I was just surprised that... He knew the word hula hoop. I don't know why, but he said, you know, he said, you're looking at, you know, something that's, you know, basically a yard in diameter on landing the shots at Augusta National. So we did the, I did the interview with Sevy and they did the, the chipping and I had dinner with his family every night. He just could not have been more wonderful. And so I said, when you come to Orlando for the father's son, I said, call me and come over for dinner. And I knew he would never call and they called and he said, we're here and we want to come for dinner so we picked a night and i said i'll send a car for you and now he's married to the at that time to the daughter of the wealthiest man in spain and so we sent a car for him and they come over to the house and it's Sebi and i go out into my backyard and i've got a piece of astroturf for a tee and i've got a piece of astroturf for a green and the green is maybe eight feet by six feet and the shot is 33 yards because that's the width of my backyard and so we go outside and we go to a little piece of AstroTurf and there's a couple of old wedges sitting leaning against the fence and a bunch of old balls and Stevie Sevy starts hitting shots. And he hits one two feet off the ground and it's and I have a flag stick and it stops right next to the flag stick. He hits one that's completely vertical, stops next to the flag stick. He was actually from thirty three yards also hitting not cuts and draws but slices and hooks, too. I mean, stuff that would move like five or seven yards one way or another instead of a foot or two, and those would land at the flag. And he completely forgot that I was there. And then he hit one shot that didn't stop right at the flag, and he, like, looked down at the astroturf, and then he looked at the bottom of the wedge, and then he shaked his head, shook his head with disdain and looked at me like it was my fault. <laughs> and then he went back to hitting shots again, and... uh 
and we had a fantastic time. And when he got sick, I, 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 I was able to speak to him before it got bad, and uh, uh, just told him I wished him well, and that you know I had loved the experiences we had had together, and that he had treated me so well, and he was such a gracious guest at dinner, and he talked about. We talked about the the shot that he hit into the water in '86. Again, going back to that famous Masters when Sebi celebrated early on 13 after he hit the six iron close to the hole, and, and he acknowledged that he celebrated too early. And he, you know, he said, "I knew that tournament was mine before it started, and I knew it was mine when I hit the shot on 13." And he said, "On 14, he said I should have hit five iron. Instead, I tried to hit a three cut quarter four iron." And he said it was kind of a hanging lie. And he said, I totally decelerated, and I knew what Jack was doing, and that got to me, too. And he said, normally what anybody else was doing, he said, that never bother me because I knew I was a better player. And he said, but this was Jack Nicholas." And he said, and I heard the roars, and I knew about the eagle, and I knew about the birdies. And, and he said, and I just, he, he said, I just, he just, I just lost a little bit of my myself as I got over that shot and he said and of course then I three putted 17 as well and he said and by then it was already over and Jack was way ahead of me and he said that was you know the the biggest heartbreak of my career but he was wonderful to be with and his kids were great and uh I miss him he was a he was a lovely lovely guy genius real golf art auteur Peter do you have time for a couple more questions sure okay you're you're well read you've read everything about golf that there is in the library, what what are your top three golf books? Oh, that's a good one. Um, well, even though I haven't read it for a while, I would say Down the Fairway by Bobby Jones, which was, of course, his autobiography that he wrote at the age of 24 in 1926, the year that he became the first guy to win the U.S. Open and the Open Championship in the same season. And he went ahead and wrote an autobiography at the age of 24. Can you imagine having enough at 24 to write one? And he hadn't won the Grand Slam yet. That was four years later. And and what he did was he so he had the, a private printing of the book made by Milton Balch and Company, and there were 300 copies. And he would send them out at Christmas time to his friends. And when I was 13, that was a book that was given to me, and it was the first golf book I'd ever been given and that I ever read and I fell in love with Bobby Jones and I fell in love with golf history and I fell in love with his writing and I fell in love with the way that he would evoke time and place and that really started me on and I was already in love with the game but that started me on the history of the game and so that became you know an, an important an important book to my life and was the the one that got me started looking into golf history and in 1978 i was working for an english bank and i flew to cincinnati to go to some kind of meeting which i canceled because i wanted to go to mort olman's the golf shop in cincinnati and when i got there at 9 in the morning mort was taking out of a trunk basically like 500 golf books that he just bought from an estate and he started to lay them out on a picnic table and he would put them on the table and I would take like five of the seven that he would lay out and I would put them in my own pile until I had about 100 books and it was just like everything that I didn't have or like a first edition of stuff and he had no idea the value of anything and charged me two dollars and four dollars and so I'm looking through the books and then all of a sudden I see this copy of Down the Fairway and it was a version I had not seen before. And I was pretty sure as my hand went to reach for it that it might be one of the 300 copies. And, you know, with a kind of a faltering hand, I opened up the front cover, and there in Jones's hand it says, To Dear Old Bill, Merry Christmas, Bob, 1929. Mm-hmm. So it was the year before, year before he wins the Grand Slam. And then you turn the page... And there's that kind of tissue paper uh, that covers up a photograph, and the photograph is signed by Robert T. Jones Jr. and by O.B. Keeler, who was really the guy who chronicled Jones's career, of course. And and I and then I went to the next page, and it said this is copy number 245 out of 300, and so I put that in the pile, and. None of them had prices in them yet, but it didn't matter to me, and I didn't have any money anyway, but I was going to buy whatever I was there and 
books didn't become weren't valuable then like they are today and he charged me twenty dollars for the Jones book which was probably worth even at the time maybe eight thousand dollars maybe now it's fifteen and I, st- I have the it and I have another, several other editions of it but my youngest son who's sort of become a golf historian lately bought me this beautiful clamshell to put the copy of down the fairway in and I'm looking at it right now and every once in a while I pull it out and I'll read some pages so that was certainly an extremely important book to me in every way because it made me fall in love with so many things that turned out to be the right things to fall in love with and I really like Bernard Darwin I guess you know maybe a lot of people don't care for his writing style but I always loved it and I always liked his references to uh, Dickens' books. You know, if you if you read Dickens and then you read Bernard Darwin, then you would get Bernard Darwin because he would just throw out a name from a book without ever giving you context, you know, and say, as Mrs. So-and-so might say, and if you didn't know who that was, you didn't get it. But I had actually enjoyed Dickens, and I really liked Bernard Darwin, and I guess if I had to pick one book of his I would probably go with the happy golfer because it's uh it's it's just a collection of the greatest stuff that 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 he did a lot of short stories and things and but I also loved his book funnily enough golf between two wars which basically focused on golf in Great Britain but it featured Bobby Jones of course cuz he played his golf between those two wars and a lot of other fantastic players and so I you know, and Walter Hagen and Gene Sarazen and Harry Varden, even though Varden was past it by that point. But, uh, you know, he almost, Harry could have won the 1920 U.S. Open, but he had the, he already had the jerks by then. And, um, and he could yip putts very, very badly, but he was 50 in 1920. And, but so that was a, a favorite book of mine. And uh, I, I kind of, like Robert Browning's A History of Golf, I know that a lot of it was done by university students, but it's a great primer on the formation of clubs when they first started, the formation of matches, one club playing another, the introduction of match play, how the game probably began, the way in which it began, how Scottish soldiers had taken a French game um, where it was kind of like golf, except after every three strokes, your opponent could hit your ball anywhere that they wanted to, and there was no putting. You would hit to a tree or a doorway, so it had interference by an opponent and no holing out. And then the Scots, you know, in the early 1400s, took that game that they had learned from really the French and the Dutch who were with them in the war against England that was going on at the time and took that game back to Scotland. And, you know, so if the three things that sort of characterize golf are sort of free hitting and then no interference by an opponent and then the act of holding out, they added those last two things to change it from, I think the game was called Chol. And so, you know, and, and it talked about how putting might have started, which was to break a tie, let's roll the ball, who first wanted to roll the ball into the rabbit hole, which is, you know, perfectly plausible. And so I really liked the Browning book, too. But I there's so many, and it's funny because I'm sitting in my study now and just kind of half looking at the shelf, even though I can't read the titles from where I'm sitting. But I notice how many books my son has actually <laughs> taken from me. <laughs> just the, he'll get those eventually. Make sure you, you get them back though pretty soon. I hadn't heard of uh, the Robert Browning book. Yeah, it's 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 a little bit obscure, so that's not, not totally unexpected. I it's uh it's not one of the famous books of all time, but um but it's very cool and it talks about stuff that other books just don't talk about like the beginning of club map and how clubs were formed and how the rules came to be. You know, there were just 13 rules at the very beginning in 1764, you know, 12 years before, you know, 1776 in this country. That's how far back it goes. And, uh, you know, talking about Mary, Queen of Scots, playing golf uh, the day after her husband, Lord Darnley, was murdered, which she was Mm -hmm. basically later convicted and tried for treason. But it was the act that she played golf the next day after his death, she said they said was wanton and careless behavior. And when I got my job at the Golf Channel, 
the way in which the deal got closed was because I had never been on camera before, but I had done a lot of public speaking and I had done a lot of acting and I was really comfortable in front of a crowd and I knew being on camera would be a no brainer. And, but they said, okay, well, let's just test his golf knowledge. So they used to call me at three in the morning and ask me really obscure golf stuff. But I had been reading golf for 30 years to that point, and I had read every single book 8,000 times. And I had a photographic memory, and I could see smudges on pages, and I could quote things and look at the page in my mind's eye. And it was, I was pretty sure that I couldn't be fooled. And the first question they ever asked me was, who was the fa first famous female golfer? And I knew it instantly that they were trying to get me to say either Glenna Colette Bear or Joyth Weathered or Babe Zaharias or but the first famous female golfer they didn't say professional so I thought about it for a second I realized there was only one answer which was Mary Queen of Scots and they said no that's not right and I said yeah it is go ahead go you better go take take a look and they called me back the next day and said okay that one's right and they used to call me literally at three in the morning like you know every four or five days for about a month and and I could you know there was no Google and there were no computers and you know either you knew it or you didn't know it and and I could do it as I was half asleep I just you know I knew it like I knew my name and and that's eventually how I secured the job was by getting all the answers right. Better drummer Keith Moon or John Bonham? Ooh, wow! Uh, I would go with John. Because I think that, uh, it, you know, Keith had to play basically one style usually, even though he was, he was not as underrated as Ringo, who always adapted the drum piece to the song at hand and did some really incredible stuff. His very, very drumming underrated. In Day, in, Day in the Life and his drumming on Rain, as a couple of examples, were particularly brilliant. Um, I would go with John because... You know, the music that he was really playing was mostly acoustic. I mean, you know, you think of Stairway to Heaven, that's an acoustic song with a one-minute, you know, outro with a lead guitar, and, you know, and it's heralded as, you know, one of the great rock and roll songs, but it was acoustic, and most of their stuff was acoustic. Babe, I'm going to leave you. There's so many things um, that he had to adjust to in terms of style. So I would give him a slight nod, and I would say Keith could be over the top, and dominate where he shouldn't be dominating, where John worked himself into the arrangement as Ringo did. Not sure how I knew you would have a good answer for that, but I just did. <laughs> um, what else you got? <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, here's one. Um, you're gonna. It's a day of celebration. Let's say uh, Tiger wins the green jacket again, or you've just you finished the book, or you just found out that your television new television show has been green lighted. Which cigar do you pull out of the humidor? I go with the Monte Cristo number two. I uh, I lived in London from July June of seventy eight, where my wife and I it was actually the one year anniversary of my marriage. My wife and I moved to London in June of seventy eight, and uh, I lived there for two years. And of course, Cuban cigars were. Uh, were all over the place in Great Britain, and I learned over time that to me the 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 the, the best cigar, in my view, is the Monte Cristo Number no. Two, which is probably as popular a Cuban cigar as there is. Or something about the shape that's really attractive, the weight of it, the gauge of it, uh, the oiliness of the wrapper. Um, you can taste a little bit of sort of chocolate cocoa in there. Um, there's a couple little spicy things going on and it's a great cigar to, it's, it, it's not that long burning. It's an hour cigar. It's not a 90 minute cigar, but I used to smoke them everywhere. I'd smoke them on the golf course. I'd smoke them on the porch. And, you know, when I used to go over and play in the Dunhill links in the early two thousands, I would buy like 50 or 60 cigars and I would take the wrappers off and I would buy boxes of cigars that 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 were legal to bring back, and I'd put those in the box. I went through a lot of trouble, and haven't had one for a while. But it's funny, I my again my youngest son Kevin was going through my closet up one day up in my study, and I've got a zillion tapes and books and stuff in there, and he found a number two um, in a box that must have been there for 15 years. 
And that night I went back onto my back porch and smoked it. And so, yeah, Monte Cristo number two. But I pretty much like them all. The, the Cohibas can be a little bit too strong. Yeah. The number two is number two is more medium, um, which I prefer. But uh, any Cuban cigar uh, that comes in my direction from anybody makes a fast friend. Before we go, I wonder if you'd uh, indulge me with one story. It, I, it's one of the my favorite stories that I've heard you tell, and it involves the first time you go up to Latrobe to meet Arnold, and I think it's the first time you walk in his house, and Doc takes you in, and you look at the wall, and you see this framed picture with some s- specific scorecards on it. I wonder if you could, could – I think you know what I'm talking about. Would you Would you mind telling that story? Not at all. Actually, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a few from that day. I, I had gotten the call after the last evening phone call at three in the morning, where they had called and said who was Sam Parks Jr., who won the thirty-five U.S. Open at Oakmont. I knew more about Sam than his mother did. You know, he was the first guy to do yardages actually because he lived near Oakmont. And he used to play a lot of nine-hole rounds in the months leading up to the tournament after, you know, became spring. And he started marking off yardages. And he was really the first guy to do it. Nicholas was given credit for it. Gene Andrews was given credit for it. But it was really Sam. So I got about that far. And they said, okay, okay. You've got, they called me the next day and said, you've got the job. And then they called and said, um, that was August of 94. And they called in September and said, we want you to go see Arnold in October and get to know him and spend a few days and interview him. And of course the first show is going to be in January and it's you and Arnold and we want you to know each other. And I said, great. So I flew up to Latrobe and, um, Arnold's office is really a house on the golf course and that's converted into an office. And when you walk in right in front of you, 15 feet away on a wall under glass that, and the, the frame may have been, six by eight feet i mean huge really big and there's a master's green jacket in there and there are wax seals and there are signatures and all ribbons and all this official looking stuff and then there's the four scorecards from the four sundays that he won the masters 58 60 62 and 64 so i I look at the card from 1958 and, you know, I see the three on number 12 and then I see the eagle on 13 when they told them that he had actually been awarded a par instead of a double bogey on 12 under the embedded ball rule that he took advantage of that his playing partner and the ref weren't sure about. And so I recognize it for what it was and I go and look at the card from 1960 when Arnold, of course, finished 3-3-3 to be Ken Venturi. And I look at this card and it says... Three, four, six. So I knew for 1,000 million billion percent that that was the wrong card. And I figured out what card it was, which was 1961, because in 61, Arnold finished three, four, six when he double bogeyed 18 to hit it. He hit it into the, he took, he was congratulated by George Lowe, who was standing outside the ropes after he hit his drive. And Arnold said, thank you very much. Then Arnold blocks his six iron into the bunker. And then he hits a bad bunker shot and it's a bad chip and it's a bad putt. And he makes double bogey to lose to Gary player by a shot. So I know for a hundred percent for sure that that's what the card is. And then it's the wrong card. And how could this possibly be the case? Wondering how many thousands of people have seen this. So at that moment, Doc Giffen, his administrative aide of you know what turned out to be 50-plus years, walks out and introduces himself. And I said, great to meet you. And I said, you know, Doc, and I explained to him what I just told you about the scorecard. And I finished the explanation, and he looks at me and he goes, there's no way you could possibly be right. 20,000 people have seen this. This came from Augusta National. Look at the seals. Look at all the, all the stuff on it. He said, just... Just let's let this go. It wouldn't be a good way to to start your career at the Golf Channel by losing your job on the first day over having your history wrong. And I said, well, I'm not wrong. It's 100% accurate. And he said, well, how would you like to tell Arnold that? And I said, I would be be delighted. So he disappears for a minute, and he comes out with Arnold. And I had shaken Arnold's hands a few times at the Tournament of Champions in San Diego in the 70s when I used to live in San Diego. And but I didn't know him or anything. And he came out and we introduced ourselves and in his hands are so big and they were so big and his fingers were like bananas. And each one of his fingers was kind of like double width. If you put two of your fingers together, they were just enormous. And, but 
I had this thing where famous people never made me nervous or intimidated me for some reason. I, I, I know it does for most people, but I always took them as, gee, this is great, and, you know, just have a normal conversation, and I was never awestruck. Um, you know, it might be by a beautiful actress, but never by a famous golfer or famous actor or anything like that. And so we shook hands, and I said, so Arnold, I said, so this card here, I said, this is the card from 61, where you screwed the whole thing up from the middle of the fairway and made a double bogey to lose to your good friend Gary Player. And he kind of tilted his head and looked at me like I was insane for a moment. And then he turned around and he folded his arms and he looked at the card and he looked at the card and he looked at the card. And then finally, without turning around, he said, I can't believe I lost to that son of a bitch. <laughs> and that's how we started our friendship. So we then go do a two-hour interview on tape. And he knows after two minutes that I know what I'm doing. And and that was actually probably my first actual interview on camera. I, I always thought of the one we did in January, but this was October, and they had cameras set up, and we interviewed for a couple hours. And so we go down to the range, and it's a Monday, and the course is closed. So it's me, Arnold, the club pro, and the club champ, and a producer from the Golf Channel. And so Arnold hits three or four balls, and we're all watching him. And then Arnold turns to us and said, okay, what am I doing differently? The club champ said, I don't see anything. And the club pro said, I don't see anything. And my producer said, I definitely don't see anything. And then he looked at me and said, well, you know everything about me. Tell me what I'm doing differently. And I said, $20, I'll tell you. And he said, are you serious? I said, absolutely serious, Arnold. I said, for 20 bucks, I'll tell you what's different. And he said, okay, hotshot, what is it? And I said, you have squared up your right foot at a dress so that it is no longer flared, but it's perpendicular to the target. And I'm guessing it's because you've lost a few shots to the right lately, and you figured by squaring up your right foot that you would be more inclined to start the ball online. And he looked at me and he said, that's absolutely right. And I said, let me have my $20. And he said, no, we're going to play for it. I said, no, I'm your partner. And he said, no, we're going to play for it. So I, so, oh yeah, I, ended, I ended up winning the $20. But if for the only time that I've ever played with a professional that I can remember, I was so nervous when we started to play. And I, had a, I was probably a legitimate two or three at that point but I couldn't make my swing and I kept snap hooking every shot and it's so embarrassing and Arnold was 65 and hitting every ball right down the middle of the fairway and had this crazy habit if he was 20 yards ahead of you in the middle of the fairway and you were in the middle of the fairway he would walk to his ball and stand there while you hit like over his head and you're so afraid you're going to hit him you aim to the right, you aim to the left it was just crazy, I couldn't believe it and we get to the 13th hole, and he parks his golf cart on the left cart path. And I'm about 20 yards behind the cart, and he walks over to the middle of the fairway where his ball is. And I figure if I can hit a really solid three iron, just knock it over the top of his cart, and I can draw it a little bit, I said I could probably run this thing onto the green. So I take the three iron, and it was in the rough, but I had a good lie. And I hit it right on the button, except it didn't get up very high. And it clears his golf clubs, clears the steering wheel, and goes through the plexiglass windshield, makes a hole the size of a grapefruit. <laughs> the ball goes another 50 yards. Arnold, at that moment, starts to tap and gets a phone call from the president of the Golf Channel, who I didn't even know existed or his name. And he says, says to the guy, yeah, Joe, here with Petey, just made his first hole in one. And uh, that that was the start of a really good friendship. Wow, wow. Well, hey, listen, Peter, <laughs> I, I I have a, I know for a fact we could go on for another hour, but let's let's cut this off. Uh, how do you think we did? You feel good about that? Yeah, it was a pretty quick two hours, dude. <laughs> yeah, I know it goes by fast. I'm always surprised. I look down. I'm like, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have to break that. So you're gonna have to break that up or something. I, I might, don't know what you're gonna do. I might with have all to that. turn this into a serial podcast with me and yeah, Peter. Yeah, we we did a lot, lot of different and stuff. The thing that I said, and I was delighted to do it. You know, especially, I really love the question about the, 
I don't think I'd ever really considered that, and uh, that was fun. So, yeah, I enjoyed the whole thing, and I, I was very appreciative of uh, being with you, and I know you've got a nice audience, and I'm delighted to have done this. Well, we'll have to do it again. I had a, I had a whole list of other topics to get to. I should have known I was wasting my time to even come up with Anytime. those questions, but we'll do it again, Peter. That was awesome, and uh, enjoy, enjoy going up to Augusta next week. Have a good time with your son. Thanks. All right. Yeah, I appreciate that. You be well. And uh, have a great season, and uh, good luck with the podcast. And again, thanks for thinking of me. All right, Peter, thank you. Take care. Good talking to you. You too, buddy. Unfortunately, our connection was breaking up there at the end, and I had to go back and edit it out. There were long silence and some cracks. But from what I could make of it, I'm pretty sure he was complimenting me and telling me how smart I was and that of all the hundreds of podcasts that he listens to, that uh, this one was his favorite. (laughs) I'm pretty sure, anyway, that's what he was saying. It's a little intimidating, actually, to interview Peter Kessler when you have a voice like mine and I'm talking and then he comes on with that suave voice of his. Uh, It's a bit jarring. (laughs) There was a little bit there, though, at the end that I I did have to cut out because he was breaking up. And it it was the tail end of that story he was telling about Arnold Palmer. He was with him that day and they were driving around and Arnold Palmer confessed something to Peter. And he was telling me and I got lost because the connection was cracking up and it had something to do with what Arnold said to him um, in regards to Ben Hogan and U.S. Opens, but we'll have Peter on again and I'll ask him about that and he can flesh out that story. It sounded pretty interesting. We've been covering some fairly serious topics the last few podcasts here about architecture and the direction of architecture. We'll get back to that, but I just thought a buffet around the Masters that it would be a good time to bring on Peter and hear some stories and just enjoy a little bit of an entertainment, as they say. Check me out on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at FeedTheBall. Go to FeedTheBall.com. I've got some new content going up there this week. As always, I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher Radio. Leave a star rating, leave comments, leave feedback in those mediums or on the website FeedTheBall.com. Thanks a million to Peter Kessler for giving us a lot of his time. Thanks to you all for listening. As always, thanks to the Sundogs. And until next time, peace, love, and prosperity to everyone.